Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. For this 100th weekly episode, we discuss what a rapid vaccination programme could mean for the UK economy and whether the digital adaptions we've seen this last year will ultimately lead us out of the crisis. With Phil Attreed, Head of Investment Consulting, Ross Dalzell, Head of Product and Proposition in the Business Bank, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. To find out about starting your investing journey with Barclays, visit barclays.co.uk forward slash investments. Hello and welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. I'm Phil Attreed, Barclays Head of Investment Consulting. And this week, as we celebrate the 100th episode of this weekly podcast, we're joined by one of our popular regulars, Ross Dalzell. And for those less familiar, Ross worked with us here in the Wealth and Investments Division for several years. He was responsible for driving forward our digital services. So from Smart Investor, our investment platform, uh, to our shiny new digital investment advice service plan and invest. However, it's actually the insights from his current role that we believe you'll be particularly interested in today. So working in our business bank, Ross gets a fantastically broad perspective of the challenges and the opportunities that are facing the UK's business community. Uh, And there are certainly plenty of both of those at the moment. So Ross, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, guys. Really looking forward to it again. Great. As usual, I also have Will Hobbs to drag us deep into the history books at any opportunity that he can, but I do promise to try and keep him as close to the present uh, as possible. And so on that note, Will, maybe you could just set out some of the UK economic context for us. We've had quite a lot of data on the economy this week. What's the latest? Yeah, there's not much scope for going back into history here. But yeah, there have been a few bits and bobs. But in reality, Phil, a lot of the signal given by the incoming data is simply drowned out by the changes to you know, the assumed um, vaccine timetable. So as you know, you know, this is a complicated business with all sorts of unknowables in there, particularly associated with the emergence and spread of you know, variants of the disease. However, the really bullish side of the debate, let's start there, argues that the UK government's current estimates are potentially seriously conservative. They point to the idea that the UK distribution effort could be about to take another step change higher with discussions on kind of mobile vaccine buses, uh, plans to bring thousands of local pharmacies online, uh, and an acceleration of um, vaccine supply. Now, the point being made here is that if the UK's weekly vaccine rate moves from you know, 3 million a week to 5 million a week by late April, then you could have every adult in the UK vaccinated by mid-May. That would certainly be incredibly welcome, Will. Although, you know, it, it may well shift out the timing of what is widely expected to be a wave of, of pent-up consumer spending. There is still hot debate about the size and the makeup of that recovery. How, how do you see it? Yeah, yeah, that's spot on. And, and actually, you know, before we go into that, I mean, I should also say there's obviously, you know, the up, I painted the upside case just there, but there's also a, you know, a downside scenario where we get into more of a tangle with the South Africa variant, for example, or supply um, hitches get in the way, you know, so on and so on. Uh, there is also, um, you know, a growing acknowledgement that we have to sort of register here that this this may not be a foe that we vanquish, you know, once and for all. It may conceivably just join the other four coronaviruses that uh, visit us uh, every winter. Anyway, you know, as you, know, as you alluded to, we, we alluded to this last week, this kind of saving story. 
But a colleague in our investment bank, actually the chief economist covering the UK, UK economy, wrote a great piece, I thought, uh, in the last couple of weeks, examining the distribution of these kind of pent-up savings that people are talking about that's going to sort of, you know, the, the pent-up savings that's going to crash onto the economy or splash onto the economy at some point when this pandemic recedes, hopefully. And he was essentially arguing, he and the team are essentially arguing that it is likely more skewed to the upper income segments of the population, the richer parts of the already richer parts of that society than widely suspected. Now, the result of this, given assumptions about higher income brackets, it's called marginal propensity to consume how much of their income they um, they tend to spend versus save, was that you could see this wave being more of a, a little wavelet uh, rather than the grand wave that people have been talking about. It also potentially has influence on the type of spending that comes with that. So generally, the further up the income segments you go, the more um, spending tends to be focused on services versus um, goods consumption, which tends to be much more dominant at sort of lower income segments. So certainly a, a lot to follow there. And Ross, that's maybe a perfect juncture. Let's bring you in here. How does all of that tally with what you're seeing from a grassroots business perspective? Yeah, pretty well. I mean, right at the moment, we've just been looking at how how this lockdown has compared to previous lockdowns, particularly, say, last spring. And it is quite different. I mean, we can all sort of see and hear it all about us. It, it, the roads are busier. You know, it's not as um, intense as last time. I genuinely never seen anything like the data we were seeing uh, last spring in terms of the rate drop across the whole economy. This time around, it's much more targeted and focused to those sectors who we all know have been having an incredibly tough time really all year. So hospitality and leisure, travel, anything in those sorts of sectors is clearly being hit quite hard, but the rest of the economy is doing okay. And indeed, there's pockets where um, uh, spend is, is up. Again, nothing rocket science in here, but groceries, for example, as we all eat and drink more at home, um, is doing very well. Uh, we can see our any of our businesses that are in the on online retail space are doing well takeaway spend is up over 100 percent year on year so there's a kind of really mixed picture in the data there's also quite a mixed picture in some of the business sentiment that's coming through at the moment so um i think the british chambers of commerce released some data a couple of days ago that talked about um 23 of businesses uh running out of cash within three months potentially so quite a lot of strain in that data 60 percent seeing a, a drop in turnover over the last month or so so quite stark and, and difficult data coming out of the rich chambers of commerce on the other hand um we run our own um sme barometer through uh with barclay card and that measures the sentiment of a couple of thousand businesses um every quarter to see um how they're feeling that sort of gives you an index score of between zero and 200. Anything under 100 is negative sentiment. Anything over is positive. That sentiment score came out at about 98, which is the highest it's been since the crisis began. And within that, there were some pockets of businesses feeling really quite bullish. So you're seeing this quite patchwork effect at the moment in terms of where the pain is being felt versus perhaps the kind of ubiquitous difficulty that we were in uh, last spring. Thanks, Ross. Some pretty incredible stats in, in amongst that. And it makes total sense that certain sectors are going to be suffering whilst others are prospering in the current environment. But I guess the thing here is that if we assume the pandemic and the lockdowns and the changed consumer risk appetite that, that come with that, if we assume that they're temporary, then maybe is it not the case that the sector picture you just described 
could be a little bit misleading. And I guess the question investors and consumers are most interested in is, you know, whilst ignoring sectors, how do you assess, you know, the businesses that are going to come out of this stronger and those that are possibly going to continue to struggle once we get past this period? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think we are in a a unique moment where the the data is interesting, but perhaps doesn't foretell the future all that well. I thought I'd maybe answer this question with a couple of examples of business owners I've seen recently doing kind of demonstrating that innovation and adaptability in the face of it, which I think underlies kind of what does success look like? So one was a, a, a founder called Sarah Scullion based in Belfast, actually in, in, in Northern Ireland, in our um, Eagle Lab that's based out there. Um, she ran a business called Integra Bookings. Integra are a um, events booking platform, sell tickets for um, concerts, things like that. Clearly a, a business massively damaged by um, effectively the freezing of that sector for 12 months. So what she's done is pivoted and created a new business she's called Community Calling using the same technology where she's uh, connecting people with a given need in a given moment, for example, let's say I'm self-isolating and I need someone to collect my shopping for me with people willing to volunteer in that community. And she used the same technologies that were in her platform already and converted them to be relevant to the moment we're now in. And has now built a platform that's growing rapidly and and indeed could well well outlive the crisis because that need will be there ongoing. Another kind of really interesting vignette I I heard yesterday uh, was a company called YOLO who are based in our Eagle Lab in Cardiff. YOLO are a, a menu and ordering solution for cafes, restaurants, so you can order from your table on your phone. Again, a scale a business who were starting small and growing very rapidly last spring, and then obviously crashed straight into this unique moment we're now in. What I think is interesting about them is they then bided their time, and as the restaurant sector reopened last summer, they were able to really dive in and kind of shift incumbents because they had a solution for those restaurants where people People, you know, they didn't want waiters and waitresses circulating around the, the room. People wanted to be able to order from their phone and maybe sat outside, etc. So actually their solution was hyper relevant last summer and they achieved a lot of scale very quickly. Then as things locked down again um, into the autumn and winter, what they realized was actually now they had their platform working and scaled, they could then deploy it into other markets. So they've, they've now set up a business in Australia and are growing really quickly there. Uh, and as a result, a, a, a made an international step they probably wouldn't have otherwise made for a number of years and uh, and achieving scale as a result. So I think it's those sorts of behaviours, that kind of adaptability, seeing the capabilities your business has and seeing how they can be relevant to the moment and how this transitionary moment in the economy is going to create room for new solutions to to kind of maybe take a hold and achieve scale quickly when otherwise it might have taken years. I think that's going to be a trend to watch in the small business economy, I think small business owners are incredible at taking those sorts of opportunities, but also clearly further up the chain as well. So that's just a, a couple of examples that I thought brought to life the answer to your question of what does kind of great adaptable leadership look like to to take advantage of these difficult times. Quite fantastic examples, Ross, and, and always great to get those insights. As Will and I, you know, were taught, you know, in the early days of stockbroking, analysing companies, it, it goes to show the importance of high quality management, adaptability, you know, innovation. Will, any thoughts from you? Yeah, loads, as you can imagine. I totally agree with Ross. It's a great examples, I mean, fascinating examples of sort of adaptability. And I think this is an old point made by economists, but, you know, thinking about productivity, which is, you know, the driving force behind economic growth, living standards, improvements, and, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, more, more precisely, 
portfolio returns, you know, you can split that thing into 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 two activities. You know, one is coming up with the idea, you know, so Excel spreadsheets I was bore on about, shipping containers, viable quantum computers, you know, electricity, whatever you can think of. The second bit is working out how to make the most of that idea. So adapting business processes and the wider economy to benefit. Now on one, on the First point, you know, it's, it's, it's relatively simple in some ways. Um, it, well, it's the difficult bit, but it's simple to think about. You just start from the assumption that every single person on this planet is a potential innovator. So you pour whatever educational and other resources you can spare into everybody's development. The more people you can bring into that educational fold and the network that comes with it, the more innovation will happen, very simply speaking. And I was actually, you know, just as an aside, there was a study looking at every single patent filed in the US and analyzing where that person came from, their background and their upbringing and so on. Now, the results showed somewhat depressingly that the children born to the richest parts of society were 10 times more likely to grow up to be an inventor than the poorest parts. It's the so-called lost Einstein effect. Anyway, I'm way off topic. But the second point, which is the bit which Ross is talking about, and that adaptability and the high quality management you just referred to, the bit that we're interested in here, that's, you know, how do we make the most of these amazing ideas? Or how do we, you know, adapt to that incoming environment and make sure that that we make the most of it? And, and, And you will be sad and worried to hear that history is instructive here. So around 130 years ago, US factories started switching from steam to electric uh, power. And this is an example that lots of you know economists use. You know, however, the point that was interesting was at this point, and for the decades afterwards, you found that productivity gained disappointed expectations for quite a long period after, several decades after the switch. It took the next generation of factory owners who'd been immersed in this sort of general purpose technology from birth to redesign factory processes around this more flexible and safer power source uh, for the gains in productivity to be more effectively reaped. Now, the same, just, you know, thinking about it could be true of all the advances in computing that have similarly failed to supercharge productivity gains in the way expected. I mean, I, I don't know about you. I don't know about you both. But, you know, when I grew up, the school had one computer and anyone who used it didn't get to go to anyone's birthday parties. It was a, it was a lonely childhood. But the point is, I find it impossible to imagine that the generations below us, I'm not making, casting any aspersions on either Ross or your age, uh, Phil, but the generations below us who've grown up with these amazing kind of general purpose technologies from birth, they will not think of more creative and amazing ways to organize businesses and business processes to take advantage. And I, and I just think the two examples Ross gave were two very good examples of that adapting to the incoming environment and working out how to make the best of it. Sorry, long response, but <laughs> it's a very interesting answer, I thought, from Ross. Couldn't keep you off history either, but <laughs> Ross, maybe some points on the role that our Eagle Labs play in, in sort of helping this innovation and up-and-coming businesses. Yeah, so um, Eagle Labs, for those who, who don't know it, of our listeners, are our sort of co- co-working, shared working spaces. We've got over 25 of them scattered across the UK. And they, they really go to exactly what Will was just getting at, actually, of the power of a network. Uh, what we've sort of seen happen in um, clusters of high growth, you know, whether you use Cambridge, whether you use media in Manchester, law tech in, in, in parts of London, and um, uh, wider technology in London as well. But you get these clusters, it's the networks that start to kind of turbocharge and, and kind of really drive that growth. And what Eagle Labs are designed to do is create those clusters around the UK and try and try and engender people to kind of work together and join up and founders to get to know each other and, and, and collaborate together. As part of that, you, you talked about at the start, the kind of high quality management and how do we build that into 
into the kind of UK economy. So we run um, lots of kind of events and seminars for anyone to attend. We had over 1,300 last year, nearly 20,000 businesses attended. We've had over 150 so far this year on a massive range of topics. They'll sometimes be delivered by business schools and in partnership with, uh, with kind of academic institutions, oftentimes delivered by founders and kind of high growth businesses themselves, just to try and share some of that expertise and skills. I know it's something the government are thinking about quite a lot. I, I've heard the Chancellor speak on this, and I know it's something he he's kind of personally very passionate about. So I think I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we see the government t- taking steps in this direction in, in the coming months. I think the one footnote or kind of note of caution I would give in there, particularly when we're thinking about small business owners, is that I think it's really important to remember the context they're living within. So if I'm a business owner, I'm incredibly time poor and my schedule is incredibly unpredictable. You know, I don't know if a pipe's going to burst tomorrow in the, in the in my business or a member of staff's going to phone in sick and I'm going to have to step in and do their job for the day or whatever. So they have a very difficult to plan their lives a long way ahead because they're frankly busy and they're, and they're doing every job inside the organization as a sort of ultimate sweeper. So therefore, we've got to be careful and thoughtful about how do we create training and content and materials that a business owner and a founder can consume at a time that suits them because probably x the hours over the next x weeks in classical education structure probably won't work it's probably got to be a bit more flexible than that to that end uh, we've got a, a youtube channel for eagle labs where every past event we've ever run is available for anyone to consume and, and listen to so that we can allow people to consume that content at a time of their leisure but with that caveat i think investing in those skills and those networks is is absolutely core to both economic growth in the short term and and that kind of longer term stuff that Will was talking about. Fantastic to hear about those resources and I I guess banks such as ours they do sit in just the right place to form this role of facilitating some of this growth and innovation and connections. So Will I mean this podcast is obviously primarily about investments how do we bring all of what we've spoken about how do we bring that back to what it means for investors? Yeah, I mean, Phil, the reality is that, that productivity is everything uh, for long-term investors. Th- this is what drives your returns. And, and if you think about that logically, that is why investing is not, cannot ever be about timing entry. It's about just getting in and waiting in diversified fashion to hopefully harvest those future productive breakthroughs. And we can't know where or when or, you know, or what they are and wait for the effects, you know, the, the, the sorry, the various efforts to kind of harness them, which, um, which Ross has been talking about. Now, a word of caution, I think is a really important here from a, from an investing perspective. Like I said, we cannot possibly know which particular sectors and business models will benefit and which will fade from relevance from our current vantage point when you're looking at the years ahead. We think we know that the net effect is likely positive for growth and portfolio returns, which is why we invest, but in a diversified fa- fashion. Think about blockchain, the you know, unbelievable technological breakthrough that, that underpins Bitcoin, uh, among other things, potentially. Now, some are speculating that blockchain could be used in all sorts of ways in the global economy, potentially re- revolution, uh, sparking a revolution in trust uh, or indeed the need for it. Now, you can get pretty funky here, particularly when you think about the degree to which current multinational business models have evolved to answer this very problem, the, the problem of trust and opportunism. So it's very difficult to trust someone you've never met in another country to do something with billions of dollars, potentially, or pounds or euros that you give to them to do something that you're sort of, you know, you're asking them to do, as an example. Now, simplistically, the answer to date 
has often been to bring that transaction under the roof of one company, one organization, or develop sophisticated kind of legal handcuffs to ensure that the transaction goes on with, you know, what goes where both parties want it to. But what happens if you can basically do this and totally eliminate a lot of the costs of this transaction? Would it be the end of, you know, the multinational megacorp as the dominant business model? Who knows? But the point is, to be very careful on how you concentrate your bets. Today's winners may not be the winners of tomorrow. And if everyone is, you know, interested, I think, in the in the sort of, like, just as an aside, again, you can get into history, and I will, I'm not going to talk about it, but I'll refer to it. If you are interested in this kind of, you know, the role of trust in the economy and the role of trust in forming corporations, there's some really interesting pieces about how um, original sort of business groupings were evolved within religious groupings. So uh, Quaker communities, for instance, and there's a lot of interesting academic work on just how kind of the religious trust that allowed transactions to go in between particular groupings, in a sense, could one day be replaced by a technology, which is an extraordinary thought. Quite. Now, I will just check that that's not the start of a climb down on your Bitcoin stance, is it? <laughs> no, no, no. And actually, we're going to get Luke and Halran uh, on next week to go through all the arguments in some detail. They're much more credible people as, as younger grouping, non, non-foggy, uh, non-balding people. They're much more credible to talk about Bitcoin and all the stuff that comes with it, and even doggy coin maybe. But for my part, I have to say... I'm getting more and more worried that it's a bubble, particularly hearing some of the arguments that you're hearing on radio. I mean, I was in a taxi on listening to LBC, listening to someone. It sounds like bad religion now, increasingly people talking about the Bitcoin standard and stuff like that. Please, I, I wear anyone listening who's, you know, piled in too heavily onto Bitcoin, please be so careful. There's not, there's not much underpinning evaluation in our opinion at the moment, but if you are sort of very convinced, you need to hear a more sort of coherent and relevant argument. Please tune in next week where we'll have the, the real experts talking about it. But I have to say, I'm very nervous about it at the moment and more and more nervous with every day that goes by. I look forward to hearing, hearing from the guys next week. Ross, uh, while we've got you, any further thoughts from yourself? I look forward to uh, listening in next week. I have to say, I'm an avid listener anyway, but uh, that sounds fascinating. Um, I just had one, I guess, parting thought for uh, your listeners to kind of think about and watch out for in, in the coming months. The thing that's on my mind is the complexity of the route out of the crisis, and in particular in the small business space, but I think it might apply quite a long way up the kind of scale of businesses. The old adage of cash flow is king, I think is going to be never more true than over the next few months. And I think it's going to be an immensely complex path to plot where um, many businesses have got VAT bills that have been deferred, rent maybe that's been deferred, rates that's maybe been deferred, loans that may be coming due to be repaid for the first time whilst their working capital has been under enormous pressure for a period of time. So there's a, a very complex and challenging set of cash flow issues coming the way of almost all businesses, whether they're growing or struggling. And I think there's a lot of very complex decisions to be made, um, whether it's in government around policy and the nature of support and how that support is transitioned from a kind of sustain us through the crisis to a recovery uh, state. The role of banks in that, you know, we're certainly thinking a lot about how do we provide lending into the economy to to enable uh, businesses to to make that recovery and then kick on and grow, but also to to businesses small and large and how they're going to navigate that cash flow challenge. So I think that's going to be a big part of the economic story in the kind of short to medium term to get us from where we are now to a, a, a phase where we're growing again after the vaccine rollout has moved forward, as we'll describe at the start. I think cash flow and the management of it is going to be really key. So that's certainly something on my mind and one 
that I'd be uh, I'm watching out for and, I, and maybe ask your listeners to to think about as well. That's fantastic. Thanks so much, Ross, for joining us, particularly for this milestone episode. And I have absolutely no doubt that we'll have you back on uh, the podcast in the coming months uh, as things continue to evolve. And obviously your insights from the business world uh, will will help our listeners uh, and ourselves sort of uh, understand how things are progressing. Thank you also, Will, and also to our listeners for joining us today. We'll be back with you next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.